to the Parable Man podcast. My name is Jeremy Pierce, the Parable Man, and I have a guest with me today, Eric Silverman, who is an associate professor of philosophy at Christopher Newport University. Eric did his PhD in philosophy at St. Louis University. He worked with Eleanor Stump, who is one of my dear favorite philosophers in, in many, many ways. And um, he has a new book that has come out that we're going to be talking about. It's uh, an anthology of essays by professional philosophers about the virtue of chastity. And uh, Eric is also the author of a couple uh, monographs that he has written about love and virtue. And uh, he has also edited a similar volume to the new one on uh, philosophical issues related to heaven. And the one that I am most uh, happy about is his book, The Ultimate Game of Thrones and Philosophy, which I wrote an essay in about disability in Game of Thrones. And that one, unlike these other ones, is a more popular level work that is uh, affordable. And uh, some of the others might be affordable, but it's, uh, it's, it's easy to read and much more intended for a popular level. It's intended for fans of the show who are interested in philosophical questions raised by the show rather than an academic work. But there's a lot of good philosophy in there. So it was a lot of fun to do. And your, your uh, essay in there is excellent, Jeremy. Thank you. We're going to talk today about the new book that just came out called, it's called The Virtue of Chastity. Is that the name of it? It's called Sexual, Sexual Ethics. Ethics in a Secular Age. Is There Still a Virtue of Chastity? Right. Okay. It just came out with... Uh, uh, Rutledge uh, Press, uh, both in hardcover and in uh, ebook. Uh, for uh, any of your uh, casual uh, watchers uh, who don't have a big book budget, I strongly recommend the ebook rather than the hardcover. Because it's much less expensive. <laughs> yes, it's merely an arm rather than an arm and both legs. Uh. <laughs> One thing I want to start out talking about is why you thought this was a book worth producing. How did you come to this idea and why did it seem like something worth doing? Yeah, well, thanks, Jeremy. Um, you know, it's funny. Uh, th this, I, I, this book literally uh, is, is the result of a casual conversation uh, I had at a conference. Uh, we were at a Mexican restaurant and there was a, a small group of us, uh, uh, Greg Gansel, our mutual friend, uh, uh, was a big part of this conversation. And uh, our topic was, well, what should people be writing about and thinking about that nobody is writing about and thinking about? And uh, when the, the conversation got to me, I'm like, well, I work in virtue ethics and you know, chastity is mentioned in all of these ancient Greek thinkers. He's mentioned in these modern enlightenment thinkers. Why in the world is it not even mentioned in, uh, in most uh, most discussions of virtue ethics today. Um, and I'm like, somebody should be writing about that. And then of course the light bulb went on and that when, when you uh, uh, stumble upon a topic like that, this is an opportunity that means, well, gee, maybe I could be the guy writing about that or at least uh, editing the book where a bunch of people are writing about that. Um, so I, uh, uh, over the next couple of years came up with the idea of let's get uh, a range of viewpoints together on sort of contemporary uh, secular attitudes towards, uh, towards chastity, uh, uh, the virtue of chastity. And uh, the, the book has a, a wide range of views represented, uh, everything from uh, uh, Alan Goldman's view, which is uh, uh, virtually that everything consensual is, is acceptable and that there's nothing, uh, there's no special sexual virtues, um, to uh, Alex Pruce's uh, view, where he, he argues that there is a, a sort of a prima facie reason to doubt the permissibility of any sexual uh, action outside of uh, sort of reproductively oriented acts within marriage. 
So, um, so we've got, we've got uh, the, both extremes represented in, in the book and uh, in a wide range in between. And so, which makes for a great conversation. And all of the arguments in the book are secular. Well, that's right. That's right. Including Proust. Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, Proust uh, gets to that, that argument, uh, mainly drawing upon Immanuel Kant. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I, I thought it was important to uh, discuss this on a secular basis because um, really since the sexual revolution, the, uh, the attitude has been that uh, abstinence or chastity was, uh, was, you know, kind of a religious thing. Um, and uh, this is different from the historical view where there's a wide variety of cultures uh, from uh, sort of ancient Stoicism to uh, early Anglo-European Enlightenment thinkers to uh, Confucianism, where, uh, you know, chastity is uh, a secular virtue that's needed and, you know, no, no, no um, religious arguments necessary or, or perhaps even no religious arguments welcome. I mean, it was just thought, well, well, of course, you need a stable society. You need uh, personal temperance and self-control. Why would you give your appetites uh, sort of free reign over yourself? Uh, the, these are some of the, the traditional secular views that uh, can be encountered. And of course, there's some traditional secular views that are uh, not so interested in chastity. But, uh, um, but yeah, there, I was surprised uh, to, to see just, uh, just how broad the... Uh, uh, interest in chastity has been. But even in the most permissive side with Goldman, I think he would still see there is a virtue in chastity. It's just not something particular to chastity that makes it virtuous, right? Well, yes and no. I mean, so yeah, yes. First, he has a couple of points uh, on chastity. One is that there's nothing special about the, the, the applying ethics to sex. So there's not a special sexual virtue. Right. Um, but he does, he does say some, some uh, sort of minimally uh, restrictive things about you don't want to be addicted to things. You don't want to uh, run roughshod over issues of consent, these sorts of things. But still, you, you get sort of the broad idea that, you know, uh, as his original famous paper goes, this is just plain sex and uh, we shouldn't right. make much of a moral deal over it. Right. But he does have... I think worries about when consent is present, right? Sure, sure. There, there are times when it feels like on the surface there's consent, but there isn't actually consent, or it's undermined in some way. He and that that can do a lot of work. I mean, it, it surely it can, and I, I think our society. Uh, I, I think uh, Professor Goldman is sort of representative of our our larger secular society on on this issue, where. You know, back in the 60s uh, and 70s, uh, you know, it just felt free love. Anything goes. Let's get rid of all these old, outdated rules. And it turns out that when anything goes, uh, a lot of bad things end up happening. And you, you need to um, sort of uh, re, uh, rediscover some of these uh, uh, concepts. And uh, it turns out consent isn't just no means no, but there's all sorts of relational power dynamics you need to be, be aware of. Uh, uh, there's all sorts of, um, you know, explicit versus implicit consent. Um, and, and it's just, you know, there's a lot more to be uh, examined. Uh, so this is why, for example, um, there was a time, it's hard to believe that uh, professor and, and student relationships were, were widely considered to be at least mostly acceptable. And in the past 20, 30 years, we realized that's nowhere near an equal power dynamic. That's 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 not a, a healthy relationship between equals, and uh, and that sort of model's been extended throughout uh, uh, many of the workplace relationships. Uh, you, you you don't want um, an unequal relationship that seems to uh, uh, endanger the notion of consent. They're very reluctant to to want to do things like that. And one of the most popular actors who played a role on Doctor Who has now been banned from some performance that he was going to be in because he pulled his pants down at some meeting. <laughs> well, I mean, it's certainly, and it's certainly as good to, as a joke. Well, I mean, he yeah, thought it was well, funny. He thought it was funny. Well, I mean, the, I think the comedians have been warning us for a while that uh, 
uh, the, these restrictive attitudes are very bad for uh, for comedy, uh, and and uh, and they might be, but uh, but still, it's probably good that everyone uh, feels a strong sense of uh, of taboo of uh, maybe we shouldn't just go off and do crass, offensive, sexual things and just try to pass it off as a joke, or, or even intended as a joke. I mean, you, you know, we 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 want to have a a society that's not hostile towards, um, you know, towards, uh, towards people that, uh, you know, don't want to see, uh, you know, we, we don't want to be exposed to other people's genitalia. I mean, that's not, right. a, uh, that, that, that's not a, a, a crazy conservative, uh, position. I mean, basically we, we tore down all the old rules about sexuality and now we found out, uh, anything goes, doesn't work very well. And we need to start, you know, recovering certain principles, which was kind of the idea behind my book. The idea was, you know, are there at least some aspects of these traditional attitudes towards sexuality that uh, uh, ought to be resurrected? Now, uh, clearly the consent piece was already out there and uh, uh, both in the, the narrow and the broader sense. Uh, another piece that, that I think uh, gets understated is uh, the, the traditional uh, value given to temperance. The idea that you find in the ancients you know, you don't want to be controlled by your appetites, full stop. Um, you know, it's uh, probably uh, more extreme with uh, uh, appetite towards food. I mean, gluttony is probably the deadliest of the vices. I mean, we, we have people who uh, uh, die, uh, you know, in a measurable way younger because they they don't, you know, can't reel in their, their excesses of their appetites. But this this also goes for uh, for sexuality. I mean, um, to, uh, to be under control of our, our, uh, impulses isn't a great thing. And it, it can result in injustice as well, or it can just be really unhealthy for ourselves. And that's, I mean, temperance or self-control or moderation is one of the four cardinal virtues of the ancient Greeks. It's well, that's whenever, right. That's whenever right. they're, they're go-to cases of virtues, that's always one of them. That's yeah. right. So temperance is a paradigm example of, of virtue and, uh, it's needed throughout. And, and it's not this extreme, you know, no appetite or, or, or no sexuality. It's, but, but you want to be under control. You know, you don't want to be under its control. And I yeah. think since Freud, there's been this uh, idea out there in both society and the academy that, you know, well, people just can't help uh, their, their sexual impulses. And that might be true to, in, in a certain sense, you, you, one can't simply you know, think to oneself, stop being attracted to this person or that person. But, um, but there's surely degrees to which one can, um, you know, develop broad self-control. Maybe you, maybe you can't uh, prevent a passing thought, but, but hopefully you can uh, prevent a, a harassing behavior, certainly before it gets to that point. Right. So you've got this interesting, um, I mean, you're going to find some of the ancient Greeks that do have the more absolute kind of view, Epicurus, for example, sure. who really didn't see any value whatsoever <laughs> in even, even anything romantic, never mind sexual. He, he, that just gets in the way of his pain management strategies, because that's really what life is about for him. There are no well, positive goods. Pleasure is not good. It's just neutral. Yeah, I think the quote so, I have from Epicurus was, uh, um, yeah, that that's, uh, sex never helped anyone, and uh, and a man's lucky if it hasn't harmed him by the end of things. Right. So, <laughs> so he, he thought this was a bad bet. But he had a view that you should really not depend on anyone else at all, and the reason is that just sets you up for pain because they're eventually going to fail you, and to live a quiet life by yourself in the countryside and don't depend on anyone, which of course is not what he did. He lived in the city and he had people over his house all the time so he could talk to them about Epicureanism. So he didn't even follow his own advice. But that's the Epicurean ideal. It's just sure. not getting attached to anything, not getting uh, entwined in, in, I mean, much more extreme even than the, than the Stoics who right. were involved in politics and got married and had children and so on. The Epicurean view is really the, the, uh, the most limiting one among the ancient Greeks. Which is surprising, which is surprising given, um, you know, the, the interest in, in pleasure and hedonism, but it, right. it's, a, it's a pretty negative take on things. Uh, the, the negative take is, yeah, you know, pleasure is what's valuable in avoiding pain, but the best strategy for it is just to, you know, 
get just, rid of all just, your desires. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the ones you can. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And manage the others. But there's a really uh, a live question out there. And, and I found this in uh, some of Harry Frankfurt's work um, and his uh, very influential article on free will and uh, the, the concept of a person. He talks about the, the difference between a person and a wanton. Um, and a wanton is someone who's unable to want what they want to want, uh, or which is a way of saying uh, somebody who, who's unable to shape their own desires. Uh, and he seems to, to think that everyone's kind of on a spectrum. It might not be the ex extreme Freudian view that no one can help anything, any of their, their sexual desires, but uh, uh, it, it, you certainly end up with this view that um, you know, people, uh, people aren't really free to, to self-shape in this, uh, uh, to, the, to the degree that most of us wish we could. And that's really Augustine's view. Well, Ultimately, of course, I mean, he says the one thing you can do is ask God for help. <laughs> right, right. Well, of course, you know, we're, we're discluding uh, religious views from this, but, right. but you're right that the classic religious move is to say, yeah, you're kind of stuck, but at least uh, uh, you can have grace or supernatural power or infused virtue. Uh, you know, that's where the real hope comes from. But apart from that, uh, the kind of cardinal natural virtues um, yeah, you, you you can you can get it get get enough virtue to to live mostly at peace with your neighbor, but uh, but still you're going to be sort of a, a vicious mess deeper down. And it's kind of Hobbes's view, I guess. I, I suppose that's right. Right, and he he we we only do what we want to do. We can't really want anything other than what we do want. He's clearly a psychological egoist. Mm. We we uh, we uh, we only do what seeks our pleasure or seeks our interests anyway. I don't know. Maybe he's not a hedonist. I don't know if Hobbes is a hedonist actually. I, you know, other than Hobbes politics, I don't really. Think yeah. But he's certainly, he's certainly an, an egoist in one sense. And, and that we only, we only, uh, we only in fact, a psychological egoist and that we only in fact do what, what seeks our interest or what we think seeks our interest. Anyway, we might get it wrong. Uh, right, right. But then, then he embraces that. And says that's all we should do. <laughs> well, and I suppose it, he could uh, claim a consult ought uh, implies can. I mean, if you you can't do other than that, then it kind of ends the moral project in my mind. But uh, well, except uh, that he thinks it's rational to give up your rights to do whatever you feel like in exchange right, right. for protection from other people not doing what they feel like. So you end up with a system that, on the surface, looks like morality, but right, its foundation is not. Well, and you can see that all oh. the way back to uh, Plato's Republic is just as something that's really valued for itself, or is it yeah. a sort of uh, deal where we 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 don't want unjust things done to us, so we're going to right. give up the ability to to commit injustice. We don't really like this deal, but it's it's the best it's the best deal that we can come up with. Right, that's the sophist view. Right, but 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 Hobbes embraces the social contract. Because yeah. the state of nature is terrible, whereas the yeah. sophists would have been happy to live in the state of nature. So that's that's the big difference there. Mm. But yeah, so the the and, and in any case, that's the uh, that's the view that uh, I guess people who want to find a virtue of chastity are going to try to avoid, for the most part, right? They they you're going to need to have at least some level of not being a wanton. So, well, or, so, or else you're not going to be able to move towards something better. Well, usually the idea is something like this. You may not be in control of the current version of yourself, but the traditional Aristotelian view is at the very least, you can work towards shaping your future self. Right. So, you know, the virtues become second nature. So nobody is sort of innately virtuous. It's something that you have the, the natural potential for, but you have to work towards it. So, you know, much like a diet. I mean, um, you know, most of us tend towards uh, uh, wanting to eat too much of the wrong kinds of foods. And the, uh, the traditional, the current solution and the traditional solution as well, learn to like the healthy foods and learn to be happy with a little less. And, you know, maybe you can't control your, your desire today, but in six months, 
you know, you can learn to uh, uh, appreciate uh, fruits and vegetables more and carbs and sugars less. Uh, and I, I think the same idea is, uh, uh, you know, applies to sexuality. Okay, you, maybe you can't uh, control which impulses you have at the moment, but A, you can prevent yourself from indulging them and B, you can work towards, um, you know, channeling that energy in uh, productive, healthy ways and uh, avoiding unhealthy, addictive ways, ways that uh, uh, involve injustice, ways that involve uh, enslaving yourself to your desires, uh, and you 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 want to you know you want to be in control. You don't want to be uh, out of uh, out of control of things. I think that's a major theme of most of the ancient philosophers, and some of those strategies are present throughout them. It's in the Stoics. It's in the, I guess it's in the Epicureans even. Sure, but certainly throughout Aristotle, and uh, I'm sure the medievals in the Aristotelian tradition are are spend a lot of time thinking about that stuff. Right, right. And, and one of the interesting thing about the medievals is they even thought chastity in general was a natural virtue, that this was just what, you know, competent people did in every society, whether or not they were religious or Christian. So um, they didn't think you needed supernatural help to, uh, uh, you know, to, to restrain yourself to marriage. They thought that this was what, you know, most well-functioning societies encouraged. So they, they, Augustine would come across compared to that as much more pessimistic, I guess. <laughs> well, you, you know, uh, Augustine in his Confessions is very open about uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, having been enslaved to his uh, uh, sexual impulses uh, in his pre-Christian days and uh, uh, thought very thought very badly of it. So he he thought that that uh, he wasn't particularly uh, uh, virtuous uh, even in that most basic sense uh, in his pre-Christian uh, days. But 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 he seemed to think that was his own fault. Not that that wasn't uh, not that he might not have hoped to have done better. Okay, so it's not that he thinks that everyone's like that. Well, him. you know, he, well, maybe maybe of, most people are. <laughs> he's kind of bipolar on that issue, as far as I can tell. Uh, but if you you read later, to certainly by the time we get to Aquinas, uh, he, he thinks that there's a, a natural virtue of chastity that uh, that's an expression of temperance that you can find in, in other uh, people, whether or not they're Christian, whether or not they have infused grace, whether or not they have supernatural virtue. I think you get some themes like that in Augustine. Uh, which is why he likes the the Stoics so much, uh, the Stoics and the Platonists. Is at least they they talk about the importance of not feeding your appetites. Uh, that uh, you ought to appreciate the the virtues of the mind and the immaterial soul over the body. Um, he doesn't accuse them of uh, intemperance, uh, although he he does accuse them of great pride. That's the sin he associates. Yeah, yeah with, the Stoics uh, are arrogant in his mind. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. he thinks they're brilliant but arrogant. Yeah. But he does. Yeah. So, yeah, he, reason should be in control, though, for him. Right. He's pretty clear about that. And, and in some ways, that's right out of Plato. It's well, the, right, the, right. The, the three parts of the soul, the reasoning part, the emotional part and the pure physical desire part. Basically, uh, where reason will train your emotions to love the right things. And then the emotions will come alongside reason to keep your desires in check when, when they're not appropriate. Absolutely. And, and that's what Augustine uh, uh, liked in, in the Neoplatonists. Uh, he, he seemed to uh, be more attracted to them than, than to the Stoics. But, uh, uh, yeah. but he did think, um, you know, I mean, you, you couldn't do it perfectly, but, uh, but, but he thought that, uh, that the right valuation there, that, you know, the structure was fundamentally correct, that you should, uh, you should seek to uh, shape your yourself according to rational, uh, you know, which ought to be rational values. And as uh, Plato advocates in the Republic, that uh, reason ought to rule the self and not appetite. Despite the fact that he was, um, you know, under his own uh, self-evaluation, that he was really, really bad at this in his pre-Christian days. Thinking through the, the arguments now that come up in the book, one of them was the cons consent is one restriction. Sure. The self-control, tolerance, toler, toler, uh, temperance, temperance, <laughs> self-control, temperance, moderation kind of stuff. 
it's a it's it's a good virtue in general, and therefore it applies to this issue. Right. Uh, what other kinds of arguments come up? I mean, there's definitely a, at least a third virtue that comes to bear on it. It's a sort of prudence, practical wisdom. I mean, something can be just, you know, permissible with injustice and um, not be uh, sort of uh, express a failure of temperance and just still be a bad idea. Um, so uh, my, my favorite example of a sort of an unwise relationship is the Romeo and Juliet relationship. Um, which a lot of people uh, who, who, who are sort of casually into Shakespeare failed to, to, to notice this is a marital relationship. They get married off stage in uh, between one of the scenes. Um, so they're they're trying to do the right thing, so to speak, but uh, it's young, it's immature, it's unwise, it's foolish. Um, so it doesn't seem to be sort of intemperance and it's not unjust. It's just frankly a bad idea you know, given that the two families are literally at war with each other. Right. <laughs> and there's undoubtedly other relationships that uh, are, are just a bad idea. You're not in a place in your life where um, you can, uh, you sort of make room for a healthy relationship um, and so forth. So, uh, you know, concerns of prudence, practical wisdom uh, do come up. Um, but uh, but there was a, a wide variety of views within the book. Um, I think sort of the median view was something like this. Um, the median view was uh, something like on, on a secular basis, you can definitely raise serious concerns about casual relationships and um, sort of the, uh, uh, the, the dangers of those. Um, but it was difficult to get to the, the uh, more traditional view that uh, you need to be in a single lifelong marriage for something to be within virtue. Um, it, but really the, the idea that, that many people like Professor Hurt came down on was the idea of sexual temperance and sexual friendship amongst you know, relatively committed equals is, is what you really needed um, for a, a virtuous relationship. So there was a wide range of views and really the question uh, became how how traditional did you want to go? And I, I think most of the contributors didn't go all the way back to um, that uh, uh, the view that uh, you need to have a single lifelong heterosexual marriage. But um, but still, uh, most of the views were probably more conservative than um, you know just whoever you want to hook up with this weekend or or even this semester. Um, you know, sexual relationships are a serious thing with potentially serious consequences. The, the issue that I didn't see brought up uh, as much as uh, it has been traditionally is the, is the issue of family structure and children. You see, the, the real reason for that more traditional view in secular society was that it's bad for kids to be brought up without two parents long term. You need the financial resources, you need the parenting resources. Um, now, obviously, we have relatively reliable birth control in, a, in our society, um, but, but nevertheless, especially in America, we have a huge portion of, of kids, I, I think it's 30 or 40 percent, that uh, don't have full access to both parents. Um, and, I, and I think that's a paradigm uh, unjust situation. I mean, if you want to see the correlations with poverty and uh, uh, sort of you know, longer term uh, economic struggles. It's it's uh, parent. It's it's kids that 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 don't have access to to two parents. So um, that's an issue that uh, didn't get talked about a lot. And uh, uh, I'll be interested to see if uh, if um, if that gets uh, taken up more in sort of the ongoing conversation that stems from the the articles in this book. And the, the, that that argument is in Aristotle. Yeah, I mean that Pretty goes much. all. The way it goes all the way back to the ancients. Uh, I definitely saw it in Aquinas, and you know he, he does love to borrow arguments from Aristotle. So it's probably in Aristotle somewhere. It's in, too. It's in his politics. Yeah. When he's talking about the the foundation of a society, what is the um, building block of a society? He says it's the family. Right. And what is it that's distinctive of a family? It's that you have unit of people where the goal is to to raise children. 
Mm. So I don't think he would say that in a family with adoptive children is not a family. I don't think he'd say that. Uh, He doesn't seem to have room for a same-sex couple raising children. He, he, um, He has arguments elsewhere. I don't know where, but I remember when I was an undergraduate, we had a conference about arguments um, in the in ancient texts against homosexuality and both Plato and Aristotle had such arguments but I don't remember where either argument is actually offhand but Aristotle's reason for distaste for that was not about family structure it, it wasn't about you needing a man you needing a woman to raise children it was that it had to do with the the virtuous traits involved with taking an active and passive role Hmm. in in other words you have a a penetrator and a penetrated and he thought that it was unfitting for men to be penetrated yeah i mean that 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 is a a common stereotype in in several cultures that it was unmanly yeah yeah and i think plato had a similar argument so yeah i thought his was more about family structure well maybe he does have that too yeah in any case nobody really uh, picked up that that thread in in our conference in the book that came from it, um, but uh, but, but yeah, but, I mean, but you don't see that argument in the medieval philosophers who talk about that question, do you? Um, I, I don't recall it. Uh, I there. don't think that's their concern at all. The, the natural law arguments of Aquinas are entirely about needing reproduction as an intent, right? Mm. I mean, th- those are the ones so, I'm more familiar with. Yes. And Aristotle never gives an argument like that. <laughs> so it's, 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 uh, yeah, to my knowledge, you don't get, I mean, and I will say both of those are secular arguments. True. They're often misrepresented. Natural law arguments are often misrepresented as religious. They're just, they're just people claim it's religious without any, they don't give any reason why, but because Aquinas is religious, it's religious. Right. Like that, that's what they're, that, that seems to be the argument. I mean, it's the same kind of phenomenon you see. That's one of the things I thought was interesting about this book. Uh, it's 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 sort of tackling uh, a stupid objection against certain kinds of arguments that you see in other places as well. I mean, we, you see it in the design arts. People are calling them religion and saying you can't teach those in a science class. Well, the reason you're not if you're not going to teach them in a science class, the reason is because it's not a science argument. It's a philosophy argument. It's right. a philosophical argument, not a scientific one. If, if that's the reason you're not going to teach it, that should be it. It's not because it's religious. It's not religious. Well, right, right. Just I mean, because it has a conclusion that religious people agree with doesn't mean the argument is religious because it's not on the basis of religious concerns. Well, sure. Right. So, w- w- yeah. So, so one of the things uh, this book really tried to uh, to to emphasize and examine is what were the traditional secular reasons, and uh, you know, do, do they still apply, or to what degree do they still apply? Right. And, um, there was also, and we haven't talked about this a lot, there was a, a thread uh, in several of the articles about Immanuel Kant and the issue of objectification and uh, to what degree is um, sexuality, to what degree does it involve objectifying a, a non-object, a, a person? So that, of course, has been a very important um, traditional moral concern. One, my favorite argument in this book that uh, is sort of innovative is by Dustin Premitt, who talks about sort of the symbolic value of, of uh, disproportionate uh, sexual sacrifice, the idea that um, e- either forming an exclusive relationship or even potentially avoiding uh, previous relationships, there, there is a, an argument that this is value because it's symbolic of one's deep commitment and symbolizes one's deepest uh, commitment and, and sort of promise towards another. So that was a, in my mind, a, 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 the most innovative secular argument that was in there. Um, I don't think he ultimately thinks that uh, uh, that alone gets you all the way to the traditional position, but it was interesting to find, uh, you know, something that, uh, that, you know, even at this late date, there's a, a sort of a new argument that can be uh, um, developed. Because, you know, most of these arguments have been around since Plato and Aristotle uh, in some form or another, yeah. uh, as, as you referenced. <laughs> did, did anyone engage with Bertrand Russell's uh, uh, 
arguments for open mar- open relationships, open marriage, anything like that, or or the yeah. re- more recent work by Carrie Jenkins on that, def- you know, defending polyamory. Yeah, I don't think anyone engaged those issues too deeply, uh, but uh, I mean, I think Russell is not well thought of uh, within ethics these days. Oh, he he rejected it himself after he I, tried I it several times and failed because of jealousy. He right. said, jealousy is just too high a human emo- motivator to make this work. I thought for justice reasons, we shouldn't consider our our uh, our spouses, our property, and therefore expect them to be faithful in, in to, some, to some thin moral code that, that he didn't agree with. But because the motivator of human jealousy is too powerful, he, he stopped recommending open marriages. So well, he I- took it all back at some point. Yeah, that, that's interesting. I mean, you know, no doubt. I mean, there's a reason why, um, you know, monogamy has been a, a tra- certainly not a cultural universal, but it's been a strong trend. Uh, and, and it's because, you know, again, involving these third and fourth and fifth parties, it's bad for the kids. I mean, yeah. so. Um, but it, but e- not- even serial monogamy, though, yeah. has that problem, right? At a certain point, sure. Where where you have a different person with you every two or three years. Right, right. Because step- and now you got children with several different people. Right, because step parents are much more much less committed to your kids and more likely to abuse them. Uh, statistically speaking, I, I have I, you know I like my step parents. I have nothing against uh, this, but but you know statistically there are you know there is an increase in danger and a decrease in commitment. Um, yeah. You know, I, I mean, again, I, I suppose that's the, the point of those natural law arguments. But this sort of argument has to be a prima facie argument, though. It has to be a, of course. it comes in degrees and that kind of thing. Because there's a huge difference between uh, someone who gets divorced when their children are teenagers and gets remarried soon afterward. And then that's it. <laughs> Right. Versus someone who um, has a new lover every two years, right? And right. several it's... several children with different partners, right? And and um, now, I mean, in some cases, there are also a number of factors going in there. That why is it that someone is in that place? We have to think that through. If we're going to be engaging in moral evaluation, we have to think through what leads them to their choices. As sure. much as we do, is it a good choice? But I mean, I have a friend, I have a friend who has ended relationships several times because they were bad for her, but that then had consequences on her children. Right. So what, how do you balance that out? That's an open question. If you're going to give a secular argument here, you're going to have to think through these sorts of things as either prima facie duties where they might be outweighed by other considerations, or if you're thinking in the virtue way and at most Seems like the the most of the contributors of this book are in the virtue tradition. You're, well, that was there's part a lot of, the of virtues, and you have to sort out which ones you're going to focus on, right? None of them are absolutes, right? Well, sure, sure. A few mean, of them, maybe. Talking about these uh, deontological, unbreakable principles, uh, at least in general. But uh, but we, we we were left with, um, you know, I, I one of the things I took away from this whole project is that the sort of extreme individualism our culture approaches these relationships with, it, it, it seems to be part of what's, what's wrong with our current model of relationships. Just um, because as, as you, you've already mentioned, um, you know, there, there's children involved, there's greater family issues, there's greater social structure issues. Um, to, to think that you getting involved with, sexually involved with someone doesn't affect anyone but the the two of you that just seems um like an inaccurate way to to represent the relationship um it seems to have uh you know surely once we have children involved uh it it certainly affects them um and it probably affects uh other people more broadly um so yeah so i'm i'm kind of asking myself more questions about uh, about that right now. I mean, is individualism just a failed paradigm? But so, yeah, so that, maybe that'll be the, uh, the, the, the next 
topic. Uh, uh, as, as you may know, I, I've got another conference coming up next year. I'm doing a conference on virtuous and vicious expressions of uh, partiality, of, uh, of sort of uh, favoritism, unequal treatment within uh, different kinds of relationships. Um, right. And and that's going to you know I'm still thinking about family structure in part. Uh, I think one of the current trends towards uh, flattening all relationships, like we're supposed to treat everyone equal, including our own children, to treat them no better than we treat anybody else. Uh, that seems like a again another flawed paradigm that comes from this sort of individualism. So I'm still thinking about a lot of these yeah. issues. Well, I, I haven't come to, to overarching. Uh, conclusions. I'm not sure it's, it has to come from individualism because utilitarianism is not very individualistic, but that utilitarianism would, would go that way, right? Where um, you're, you're just trying to do as much good for as many people as possible. And if it happens to be your kid that suffers because of it, so much for that, right? Sure, sure. I mean, that is one of the paradigms that pushes it. Um, uh, although I think even a, even a, a moderately competent utilitarian is going to immediately realize um, I can't do, you know, I can't do good equally for everyone. Right. <laughs> um, there's got to be something valuable about certain sorts of structures. Uh, but um, but yeah, I mean, but yeah, if the math works out uh, badly for your own children on occasion, you do need to be able to, uh, um, you know, you need to be willing to. Uh, shortchange your own children from time to time. The, the danger gets when uh, you start to realize on these sort of uh, uh, Peter Singer sort of paradigms where I need to send 90% uh, of my efforts overseas to help uh, developing nations and not save very much for myself or for, for my kids. There's a certain point where that really does get, um, get intrusive on what most people uh, want to say is appropriate for, for your own family. Right. And, and I mean, he, even he has some room for saying, well, you need to, you need to take a break. You can't work so hard that you're getting yourself too tired out, spending your resources so that you don't have anything left to, to, and so on. Even he allows for some of that. Sure. But probably not enough. Well, I mean, frankly, it depends on which, which article you're reading. <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty sure that's he's, true. That's we all, we, there's at least one place where he says we have to give away enough of our stuff uh, until, you know, we're at the marginal down. level of utility. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but, uh, yeah. but, you know, in practice, that's very, very hard to do unless uh, you have those sort of uh, extreme stoic uh, impulses. Right. Which maybe he has, but who knows? I don't know what his lifestyle is like. I know he doesn't have an expensive home or anything like that, but, um, but in his case, it's worse because he includes all animals. Right which I don't know how you can do because there's so many other species. I, I don't know how humans could even keep existing. Like we should kill ourselves, all of us, if his view is right. Because well, our, very, our very existence by necessity is harming all the other animals, it seems, if, by his standards. Well, so, I, I mean, I'm, I'm sure he would resist that conclusion. He would say oh, that of course he, he does. He's our cleverness <laughs> to to change the, you know, and you know, we, we need to invent new technologies, you know, green technologies and such. Um, yeah, but yeah. but I think he would say we need to substantially change the way we interact with all sorts of things. Uh, but yeah. at the end of the day, I think it's a, a very thin view of what is morally relevant, you know, just a pleasurable and, and painful mental states, well, I, I think. You know, utilitarianism or, uh, is an absolutist view. People don't realize. I'm wrong. I'm wrong. I'm wrong. He's not a hedonist utilitarian. He's a. Oh, he's he's a he's a preference, right? Right. He's a preference utilitarian. But yeah. So so you know, but but animals, but it still boils down to brain states. Right. But utilitarianism as an absolutist view, people don't realize that often. It has one absolute. Sure. Maximizing as much good and minimizing as much as much bad as you can. Right. And, and in his view, that's characterized by or that's flushed out by fulfilling preferences. Doesn't right. matter what the preferences are. The more preferences that are fulfilled, the better it is. The fewer that are fulfilled, the worse it is. So it doesn't matter what you want. You could want terrible things, but that's still good if you get them fulfilled, apparently. Right. So, well, it's good for you. <laughs> uh, but if it's bad enough for, you know, going against other people's preferences, then, you know, then, then we need to not 
Yeah, I don't even know how it's good for you, though. I mean, if, if your preference is to, to, to engage in um, gluttony to the point where you're going to kill yourself early, is that good for you? And <laughs> his view, it is. <laughs> well, you, you're thinking too much like a stoic. <laughs> well, of course. <laughs> and, and, and I'm sure they're right on things like that. And, and I'm sure there's resources in utilitarianism to say, well, you, you're going to have future desires. You don't, you know, you want to be a little gluttonous so that you, you can enjoy the extra pleasure or the, the extra desire mm-hmm. satisfaction, but you don't want to be so gluttonous that it uh, undermines your long-term health. That's sort of the, 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 the sweet spot uh, that, that you want to uh, aspire to. Mm. But so in any case, I think we've drifted a little bit. Yeah, utilitarianism is a, is a very um, is one way that you could propose to flatten everything out so that everyone counts yeah. equally. Uh, but yeah, this idea of responsibilities toward particular people that you have a connection with is is um, certainly a secular argument, and it certainly leads in the direction of, uh, of favoring certain sorts of behavior and not others. And it, there's no reason to think that, that um, sexual behavior wouldn't be part of that. Well, it'll be interesting so. to see if uh, anybody uh, uh, argues uh, for uh, or does papers uh, about the, uh, the moral significance of sexual exclusivity or something like that. Right, right. But, uh, but we'll see. Well, I mean, it's, yeah. we're going to have some really good people at this next conference. We've got uh, Stephen Darwall from Yale Doing our keynotes, um, we've—I'm uh, expecting several uh, very good people to to, to be here. Mm. So um, I wanted to come back to the the Kantian um, mm. using people kind of uh, objection, the the exploitive exploitative element, because uh, I think that's an interesting point. It's certainly not a religious point it's definitely a secular argument and i I mean i always thought it was very interesting in the work of um what was her name uh catherine mckinnon Mm. uh, who argued in the 80s famously that marital sex is wrong because it's uh always wrong i mean it's an absolute it's always wrong because it's taking advantage of of a power relationship uh between men and women and so she argued that that women should never give themselves into such relationships. But she she applied a similar argument to pornography and was arguing in the 80s that pornography is always wrong because it always takes advantage of power relationships in um, in in um, in cases of, of women. Right. right. Um, well, I mean, regardless of whether it's consensual. I mean, and that's easy to see. I mean, the way people tend to interact, or maybe it's of necessity to interact, the way one interacts with pornography is is completely opposed to interacting with somebody as a person. Right. I mean, this is, uh, right. you know, this is, uh, uh, yeah, this is by definition to not interact with that person as if they are a person. They're just a satisfier of desires um, in, in the shallowest way possible. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that is one of the traditional arguments against pornography. And there's a very interesting chapter on pornography in, uh, in my book uh, about a lot of the sociological effects of pornography. Um, so it was, you know, seems to be a, an issue that's still worth talking about. Yeah. Um, now of course, I'm a lot less sympathetic to say that uh, all sex is necessarily uh, a treating another as a, as a means. That being said, that actually seems to be an argument that Immanuel Kant himself would have considered. He did seem yeah. to think that all sex was, if not immoral, at least potentially problematic, that, uh, that, that the sexual desire is to treat one as a means, and that at least within marriage, there was the potential for a sort of mutual uh, relationship that... Uh, at least gave some layer of protection uh, to uh, to make it such that it wasn't just using one another. Um, but still, I don't know how that prevents the individual instance of of being 
an instance of being completely egoistic in uh, in one's uh, in one's desire. Now there was this uh, treatment by Nagel, Thomas Nagel, many uh, a few decades ago. Uh, on a, I think it was some chapter in some book that he released on a regular, relatively popular level. We had a chapter on on different which one was on death and things like that. And he had one on sexual perversion, hmm. where he, I, I think what I think it's a simplistic account of perversion. He, he's giving one way of something being perverse, mm-hmm. but he defines a sexual perversion as anything that departs from the following model. <laughs> the model oh. is the model is your desire for someone else is not just desire to get something from. Them but a desire to please them. So Hmm. you're treating them as an end in themselves. That's compatible with also having a desire to get something out of them. Yeah. But it's, it's, um, they both could be present, but if the desire not to, if the desire to seek them as an end is not present, right. Then it's a perversion. That was his, his argument. And so, he, he gave an argument, therefore, that homosexuality is not a perversion, but uh, anything where there's no consent is. And right. anything where there's um, even even absence of consent, but no explicit lack of consent. Um, sure. would be, so, so cases of um, someone being incapacitated, for example. Right. Um, and, uh, but by implication, it would it would include pornography as a perversion, mm-hmm. in this in 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 a way that makes it on the same level as well. I mean, it, not morally necessarily on the same level, but in terms of whether it's a perversion, on the same yeah. level as a case completely lacking in consent. Well, you know, Nagel there is really uh, using the standard Kantian paradigm. Uh, you know, yeah. that version of the categorical imperative. It doesn't say never treat someone as a means. It right. says never treat someone as, as a mere means. As a means, yeah. as a means yeah. or as a mere yeah. means, and not yeah, simultaneously as, as an end. Right. I mean, and and I I you know press my students on this. You know, it's very hard to get through a day without treating someone as a means somewhere. You know, but, yeah, but, you go into a store and buy something. Exactly, you're treating exactly. someone as a means to an end. And I always make the point that they're using me as a means to an end, and I'm using yeah. them as a means to an end. Because I sure. would teach these classes if I didn't get paid for it, and if they didn't take right. it. And they wouldn't take the class if they didn't get credit for it. Right. Right. And there's what they're using me teaching the class as a means to getting something. So I, it's, it's obviously true that using someone as a means to an end is not always wrong. Right. I mean, it's like so, I said, it's virtually impossible to, to completely avoid it. So is Kant's argument then with this issue forgetting that? Well, uh, again, no, no. I think, I think that the question there then becomes what does it look like to treat someone as an end simultaneously uh, while, while um, you know, having a desire for, for pleasure within a relationship or an activity with somebody? I mean, that's, that, you know, uh, w- I mean, it's one thing to, to use the expression, treat someone as an end, but what exactly does that require? I mean, you know, does it require a lifelong commitment? Does it require... Uh, an interest in their sexual fulfillment? Does it require, um, you know, a, a mere interest in consent? I mean, that's, that, I think that's where you get to the, um, the, the ultimate cash value of, uh, of Kant's position is, you know, what, what, what is the necessary, how do I fulfill that necessary condition? And his answer was, you was, can't. You know, <laughs> well, his, his answer was, was marriage. Um, oh, and, okay. then he, and then he kind of, then he kind of still wasn't fully satisfied with it. Which right. Is, so it sounds like he's not really convinced that it's possible. Right. Which might, might be why he never married. Um, right. But, uh, but this also is, is a, a traditional um, sort of Thomist position, or at least an Augustinian position, that uh, uh, sexuality is sort of always suspect, um, you know, even within marriage, but at least marriage mitigates the, the, the most troubling aspects of it. So, my, you know, there still is such a thing the medievals talk about as lusting over, uh, lusting after one's own spouse, um, which, you know, is insightful in this sense. Just because you have a certain legal relationship with someone doesn't mean you're being appropriate in your, your sexual interactions with them. 
Um, but uh, but at the very least, it, it goes a ways towards uh, mitigating many of the most obvious ways that you could be using them. So, I mean, I, you also have this thing in Aquinas about different kinds of love, right? Sure. You have you have you have the love that's. I mean, I think the English translations don't do us justice to what he's saying here. What is usually translated the love of desire and the love of uh, friendship, I guess. Right, but, right. But where it's not that friendship is the thing you're loving, and desire is the thing you're loving, which is what it sounds like in English. But the the love that's characteristic of desire, and the love that's characteristic of friendship, the love that's characteristic of friendship, you are entering into that person's desires, mm. and putting yourself in their position and thinking, what do they want, and trying to satisfy that. And if you don't have that, then you don't have what he sees as the highest form of love. Sure, sure. You need a, a desire for the other's well-being and a desire for a, a kind of uh, relational unity or bond with them. Um, you know, so so it's so you, you you see some of these themes. I, I think Kant is influenced by this kind of thinking. Uh, I mean, in Aquinas, the desire for a kind of relationally appropriate union, unity, bond, that seems to be there. And, and maybe that's what Kant's trying to get at when he says, um, treat someone as a person, as, as an end as a person. Um, but I, I think Aquinas has the, the better sense of it, that it's not just to treat someone uh, sort of in the abstract sense as a person, but in a concrete sense as a person with whom you are in relationship. Um, so, so I think I just showed my cards there. I, I strongly prefer that uh, that that uh, that Thomistic paradigm from Aquinas over uh, Immanuel Kant. Mm. But that's you know, but Kant has some some uh, worthwhile philosophical tools. So I don't want to ignore him. I, but I do uh, prefer Aquinas at the end of the day. Well, do you have any uh, final questions for me, Jeremy? Uh. Yeah, I mean, who who uh, who do you think is the audience that this book is intended for? Is it is it something that someone who's not a professional philosopher could mm. read and understand and benefit from? Yeah, you know, here's I think there are people out there that I, I would hope would read this book that aren't just professors. I mean, obviously, if you study formal philosophy, you'll have a a big leg up. But I would love to see. Uh, professional counselors, psychologists, uh, you know, marital uh, therapists, uh, maybe even pastors, just look at what sort of secular moral concerns one might raise uh, concerning relationships. Uh, because I think, um, I think we need to get back to advocating a kind of uh, virtuousness uh, within people. I, I think there's a, an audience out there, people who are concerned about um, sexual relationships, people, professionals that speak to uh, romantic marital relationships uh, uh, or just sort of personal wholeness. I think there, that uh, an educated person in a, in a wide variety of fields could, could benefit from this. Do you think there's any chapters in this book that would be suitable for an introduction to philosophy kind of class? Hmm, that's a good question. Uh, I really liked uh, Professor Hertz's uh, article. It was very well historically informed. So her, her article on chastity and the well-lived life, I think is accessible. Uh, I think my own um, article about temperance, justice, and prudence is pretty accessible. And if your students are reading Aristotle, they're gonna see, they're gonna see that, that echoed there. Uh, I think Beatty's chapter on um, chastity, lust, and practical wisdom is is very uh, very suitable. Um, I think uh, if you're doing a business ethics class, I'd love for people to read uh, Professor Tweet's article on chastity in the workplace. I mean, you know, here's a topic that we really need to think about and is very practical to everyone. Um, so uh, yeah, I think several of these would be sort of broadly suitable. Well, the book is uh, called, again, um, oh, I closed, uh, Sexual Ethics in a Secular Age, Is There Still a Virtue of Chastity? And I have been talking with Eric Silverman, uh, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Christopher Newport University. And um, so 
maybe you will find some interest in this book, but certainly at least have uh, learned some thoughtful and helpful things about how you can argue secularly for a virtue of chastity. And uh, thank you for joining me. My pleasure, Jeremy. Thank you for having me. Well, I very much enjoyed the conversation. So maybe we can find something else to talk about in the future and have you back. Well, if you ever want to talk about those uh, old Game of Thrones issues, I'm sure we... Uh, <laughs> you know, that might be an interesting so. thing. So, yeah, that'd be fun. All right, good. Thank you.